Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Listeners support the Peter B. Collins Show, and I'm very grateful. Today, we'll single out Margaret Anderson for her stalwart support of the Peter B. Collins podcast program. Question is And today we're going to talk about mistakes compounded. Later in our program we'll meet Charlotte Dennett. She ran for Attorney General of the Green Mountain State of Vermont last year in 2009 on a platform that included the proposition put forward by Vincent Bugliosi prosecuting George W. Bush for murder. It's a very interesting legal concept and uh, Charlotte Dennett is uh, a member of uh, a loosely uh, a loosely defined group that I include myself in called the accountability movement. So we'll be talking with her and I'm looking forward to that. I invited Andy Worthington to return to our program today to lead off our conversation because he is my go-to guy when it comes to the issues of the American gulag, including Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And since the events of uh, Christmas Day, the attempt by uh, a gentleman named Abdul Muttalib, tough name to pronounce, and even President Obama had trouble with that, uh... Because he was uh, allegedly trained and equipped with the explosive knickers in Yemen, we have a new focus on Yemen. And uh, we launched a Predator drone assault a few days before, but we don't believe that it's a direct retaliation. We launched an assault on the imam who used to be in Washington, D.C., who went to Yemen and who was in email contact with uh, Dr. Hassan, who is the gentleman who is uh, alleged and uh, pretty well defined as the gunman at Fort Hood, Texas. And uh, those connections have uh, produced a wave of hysteria in this country as uh, airline security has been doubled and redoubled to the point of uh, lunacy and idiocy. Uh, 
And now we're hearing a chorus of voices. They started on the right and they're moving leftward, saying we've got to keep Guantanamo open. We cannot repatriate any more citizens of Yemen. And the White House has uh, struck a middle ground where the president asserts that he will move forward in closing the prison at Guantanamo Bay because he correctly uh, identifies it as a, uh, a source of recruitment for jihadists and uh, for those who hate America, uh, an irritant. But he is saying that uh, he will for now, and there's no indication how long now will be. Quote, we will not be transferring additional detainees back to Yemen at this time. But make no mistake, we will close Guantanamo prison, which has damaged our national security interests and become a tremendous recruiting tool for al-Qaeda. Andy Worthington has written the book about uh, Guantanamo that you should be aware of. He's been on our program many times before, and uh, he joins us today from London. Andy, thanks for talking with us again. Hey, Peter. Good to be here. And just before all of this developed, you put up a powerful post, which was uh, the third in a recent series, uh, arguing why additional citizens of Yemen who've been held uh, without charge and on an indefinite basis at Guantanamo uh, should be repatriated to their country. And uh, you make a strong case and you identify some of the individuals. I'd like to uh, get some thumbnail sketches on uh, some of them as we continue our conversation. But first, I want to ask you just to comment on what I described as hysteria, which has broken out on our shores uh, and this new uh, boogie nation of Yemen that many Americans are just becoming aware of for the first time. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was, I've been appalled by it, actually, Peter. I, I almost reached the point where I, uh, where I hit the outer fringes of, of despair, really. Um, and as you know, I've, I've spent many years hammering away on the, on the subject of Guantanamo and the um, utter lawlessness of the, the, the whole premise of the place and its existence. And, um, you know, I was just I was overwhelmed, really, by the, um, by, by the incredibly ill-informed response, the paranoia, the scaremongering, the hysteria. Um, you know, I, I, I've kind of got used to this kind of stuff over the last year, ever since really last spring when the Republicans worked out that um, pushing the terror buttons was a way to attack Obama and that it seemed, um, seemed to be a win-win situation for them, um, carrying on playing the fear card above all that, you know, that Dick Cheney had been so responsible for. Um, but, you know, this seemed to be on a scale beyond the, a, anything else that I've seen, actually, in the last year. Um, you know, admittedly, here was, a, here was a man who was, you know, trying to blow up an airplane. Um, it would have been a disaster had it happened. Um, but it was thwarted. Um, you know, it, it, it's, and everything that's arisen out of this, um, it, particularly, I think, it's these connections that were raised with Yemen and then the whole kind of uh, war cries about Yemen that have arisen. Um, you know, which have just reduced what obviously um, is a complicated issue to um, to very simplistic warmongering sound bites, and actually a lot of misinformation, particularly um, about um, this would-be bomber's alleged connections with former Guantanamo prisoners in Yemen. Well, and this is one of the critical issues because we saw uh, a meme surface. Uh, even before Obama took office, that, uh, you know, we need to keep the worst of the worst at Guantanamo. 
And then we saw as Obama came into office with this flourish promising to close the prison camp there that uh, prominent Democrats uh, started to uh, throw up roadblocks and then the Senate voted a lopsided. I think there were only six votes against this measure to deny funding to close Guantanamo. So this has been uh, consciously fed uh, by members of both parties. And it's very troubling because it, uh, at minimum, uh, gets in the way of clear thinking at a time when that is what is most desperately needed. Yeah, well, absolutely, it does. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I would not like to, to underestimate the difficulties that um, President Obama and his closest advisors have with dealing with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, because, um, you know, on, on just about every issue, they're, they're running scared and they're obstructing attempts to address what, for Democrats at least, really ought to be a central issue. This is a, um, you know, a lamentable stain on America's reputation established by the Bush administration, we really must work hard and fast to, to remove it. And clearly, significant numbers of them have, have done nothing of the sort. Um, you know, and I, I struggle to understand how opportunistic some of this is on the part of Republicans and how much some of it is genuinely based on fears. And my, my feeling really is that everybody's worked out that um, selling fear to the American public works. But I also think that people have become caught up in it themselves. Um, you know, and, and to give a kind of meta view of this, what depresses me about it all is that um, when something like this has just happened and you realize how obsessed everybody becomes with it, um, you know, we, there are so many other things that we really ought to be dealing with. Um, you know, and, and terrorism, I think, is a kind of um, side, side issue of the whole militarism that's going on. And, you know, and yet we're not questioning the insane amounts of money that are being spent on the military under Obama, you know, pretty much... Um, continuing a, um, a huge military policy as the Bush administration did. And yet, you know, here we have, uh, you know, we have a recession, we have um, all kinds of problems with the world, and yet none of them are getting a look in. Um, you know, I, I really think we need a, a whole new way of looking at the world. And I really hope that some of these voices might bubble to the surface with a new decade, that maybe we were starting to turn our backs on things. We would look back on the decade that was dominated by fear and mass murder and mayhem and extraordinary expenditure on these things. But no, it appears that, you know, that a large number of people are happy to have a rampant military-industrial complex still running the show. Well, and if I can take one of uh, President Obama's favorite phrases and turn it on him, uh, he likes to talk about looking forward and not backward. Uh, but we fail repeatedly to look back, even in the rearview mirror, uh, into recent events to look at what triggers these kinds of responses. And in our preceding podcast with former CIA analysts Mel Goodman and Ray McGovern, uh, we discussed that, uh, for example, the attack on the CIA forward base near coast Afghanistan is not just a, you know, a, a freestanding event. This is direct a direct effort by the Taliban of Pakistan to snuff out the attacks by predator drones that were being uh, in some way controlled or commanded from this forward base near coast. And in the American media, we never even acknowledge that. We don't take our white hats off for a moment and say, well, gosh, maybe there's a proximate cause for this. Maybe we have irritated people, whether it's Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, uh, drones into countries that we're not at war with, 
the, the list goes on. But we are uh, uh, so much in denial and unwilling to confront uh, the you know very probable causes of some of these recent events. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, I, I absolutely do think that um, that you know that's being excluded really from people's reasoning is that um, perhaps if um, if there was less violence and more attempt at dialogue, there would be less blowback. But you know, you're right. It just seems to have. Um, you know, that we're, that we're not really thinking along those lines. I mean, I have just seen an extraordinary story about this. This is the sea, the, the attack, um, the, the killing of um, these CIA people in in um, Afghanistan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that this guy was a double agent. Well, double um, or triple? Double, triple. Yeah. Well, it gets <laughs> very murky, doesn't it? But yeah, I mean, it's you know. Well, and, 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 and let's, let's take a look at this, because the Jordanian officer who was killed by the guy that he tried to turn, uh, this, this the, you know, the more we learn about this, the more we see that the Bush-era tactics uh, are counterproductive, because uh, this, the, the, the guy who strapped on the bomb and went into the U.S. base and blew himself up, uh, was a known al-Qaeda sympathizer. He had a website where they said his commentary was uh, radical and extreme. And so they put him into prison in Jordan. Now, we rendered people to Jordan for the purpose of uh, enhanced interrogation, for torture, right? Sure. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so this guy was probably tortured. And so what did he do? He said, all right, I'll flip. And for the benefit of the Jordanians and the Americans, he said, I'm your guy. And so we bet on a guy who had been tortured into submission, and I, I'm speculating there, but I, I think I'm on pretty solid ground, Andy. Yeah, uh, I think so. That in one way or another, he, he was forced to submit. And so he appeared to go along with it, and we said, aha, we've got the guy who we can send to kill bin Laden if he's still alive, and al-Zawahiri, uh, the number two guy, the medical doctor from Egypt. Uh and instead, what happened? Well, the theory that we could, you know, basically force somebody to do our bidding blew up in a very ugly and uh, uh, visible way. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, uh, it, it uh, you know, that to me is a microcosm of the blowback that we have earned through Guantanamo Bay. So, Andy, you pointed out to me, and I've got the story up now, here on Wednesday, uh, January 6th, as we're speaking, Bloomberg News reports a new estimate from the Pentagon. As many as one in five former Guantanamo Bay detainees are suspected or are confirmed to have engaged in terrorist activity after their release. The 20% rate is an increase over the 14% that the Pentagon uh, uh, projected back in April of 2009. And uh, it says here the officials don't provide the numbers on which the 20% is based. So this is a flat assertion without any factual basis. Isn't that convenient? Tell me your reaction to this, Andy. Well, you know, I'm absolutely gobsmacked that anybody is publishing this when they haven't even been given a document. I mean, what happened last May was that the New York Times got itself into disgrace by publishing a front-page story on the last Pentagon report claiming that one in seven, 74 prisoners, had returned to the battlefield. 
Now, you know, it turned out afterwards that the Pentagon had actually produced a report, but it had only provided names um, for 27 of these guys. And, and when they were investigated um, by people who, um, who, who were actually uh, looking for the truth, I think, rather than a propaganda piece, um, they discovered that, um, for example, Peter Bergen and Catherine Tiedemann of the New America Foundation um, decided that, that all that could be verified of um, these, these names that were presented was about 4% um, rather than 14 um, Now, the Seton Hall Law School, which has been studying these, um, these dreadful Pentagon reports that whenever they get leaked conveniently, um, concluded that the actual figure that could be verified was only about 2%. But, you know, somewhere around that figure, um, instead of 14%, um, you know, and that was based on the Pentagon actually presenting some statistics. And the New York Times accepted that it shouldn't have reported 74 when it was only given 27 names. So what are we getting this time? We're getting one in five, and there's not even a document to go with it. Yeah. Um, you know, this isn't news reporting. This is just this this is just parroting propaganda um, put forward by by the administration. For what but, reason? But 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 I'm Andy, not entirely sure. wait a minute, Andy. Why are you so skeptical? It was published in a press release. <laughs> it was, but the job <laughs> of uh, the job of journalists, as I understand it, is to um, is to examine material to um, to ascertain whether or not there is any truth to it. Um, not just to parrot a line in a press release. Now, obviously, you know, I'm, I, I'm under no illusions um, that that's actually what the media does a lot of the time. I mean, there was a fascinating book published here a few years ago by an investigative journalist called Nick Davis, um, uh, who, who analyzed, he, 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 uh, he hired a load of students to analyze what's in the news and discovered that journalism, which is his word for basically just parroting press releases and PR. Can, can you, make, can you pr- over-pronounce that for us? Journalism, is that it? Journalism, yeah. Okay. That <laughs> um, it, that it represents about three-quarters of what's in the me- media these days. So, you know, it is an example of that. But, um, you know, the whole timing of this as well, coming just on the heels of, of this whole scandal about the Yemenis, um, you know, w- what is going on here? I mean, are we, do we want to have a reasonable debate about anything? Or, or not? I mean, are we just being led now by a media which is either invested in this permanent war situation, you know, and this deprival of justice, um, or actually is only concerned about what it can shock people with? Um, you know, because, because that's clearly all that this is, all that this can possibly function as, as there's no way of scrutinizing it, is something that um, just provides a, a shock headline, um, and that's it. And the White House has acknowledged that um, the the idea of holding these uh, remaining Yemenis, numbering about 90, uh, at Guantanamo is in part because they may have been radicalized by their experience in our custody. Now, that's, that's an important acknowledgement, but it doesn't show up in the, uh, the dramatic, melodramatic media coverage. Um, that we may actually have caused people who were innocent when we snatched them to identify with our enemy as we denied them their rights and tortured them and left them in a, uh, a legal limbo and hell that they thought would never end. Well, sure. I mean, and, and, and as well, Peter, I mean, it's actually quite a difficult one because if, if you were genuinely to believe that somebody, you know, who, who had meant no harm to anybody at the beginning has actually ended up 
um, you know, with some kind of savage vendetta against you, then actually that plays into the hands of people who would say, well, I'm sorry, but you can't release them. Um, you know, I'm not entirely sure how much this is the case. I mean, I think that this is um, something that the, the administration plays on based around the behavior of prisoners, let's say, in Guantanamo in response to their indefinite detention without charge or trial, which, you know, let's not forget, if you want to compare that to the kind of bad behavior that you get in a federal prison where somebody has been sentenced and received, you know, and has been told, um, you know, this is a crime you committed, a jury has, passed, uh, has decided you're guilty, we've, we've sentenced you to this much time. That's a different response to this open-ended detention that the prisoners have at Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I find it, I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, you can't use that as a justification for not releasing people. Um, you know, as I, as I wrote when this first emerged back in um, October, they were talking about a guy who'd been cleared for release by a federal court judge. His lawyer said that in Guantanamo he's known as the sweet kid. But this was when administration officials said he might have been radicalized. We're scared about releasing him. You know, and I wrote at the time, well, do you want to apply this to the rest of the prison system then? Because anybody could have been radicalized by mm -hmm. detention. Let's, you know, let's really go to the farthest extreme of the right wing, shall we? And just say, look, the problem with releasing people from prison is that they may have been radicalized by it. Let's hold everybody forever. Let's not release anybody ever under any circumstances and then we don't get any problems like this. I mean, it's really just unacceptable. And it's another example of how, once you use the word terror, you get away with this kind of nonsense. Yeah, well... And, and, and you and know, the problem with Guantanamo is that, yeah, there's a handful of people who are allegedly involved with terrorism there, mm -hmm. but there are a whole bunch more people who were fighting with the Taliban against the Northern Alliance before the Americans turned up. They were soldiers. These are people who should have been held as prisoners of war, who could still be held as prisoners of war if that was what had happened to them. Mm -hmm. You can hold them until the end of hostilities, but you certainly don't treat them inhumanely. Um, and it's a different question. You know, and we've ended up now, this hysteria now in the new year just really strikes me that what a wonderful job Dick Cheney did and, and Don Ramsdale and George Bush when they said that all these people they rounded up essentially randomly were terrorists. They use a magic word, terror. Oh, Liz Cheney, as recently as a week ago, is still saying that by, by definition, if someone is held at Guantanamo, they are the worst of the worst. No investigation is needed. No proof is required. It is a flat assertion that is accepted by most Americans. Yeah, well, this is some kind of faith-based um, interpretation of what they're about, isn't it? I mean... You know, this is this is lunacy. It's complete lunacy. Yeah. Um, you know, without any evidence. Um, you know, I know how hard it is to sell this story to people who don't realize that actually these guys were never adequately screened and that there are serious problems um, with the supposed intelligence against them. Because although some of it may be reliable, a lot of it was extracted through the coercive interrogations of the prisoners themselves. Mm -hmm. Um you know, but, uh, I, I, and what we need is a, more, is a more subtle, nuanced understanding of what this is about. I mean, to, to reiterate, Peter, you know, clearly there were people there who bore ill will towards the United States, mm -hmm. towards the West, who were involved in terrorism. But what are we messing about with, accusing people of being terrorists, when what they were were people who were, who I'm sure that they were anti-American, um, you know, why wouldn't many people in the Muslim world be anti-American given America's foreign policy? But they were fighting a specific military conflict in Afghanistan 
when 9-11 happened and the Americans turned up. Um, and as a result, they've, you know, they've been caught up in that. Um, you know, I would, I would have no objection if these people were being held as prisoners of war. I would be interested then to see how lawyers would get involved to say, is this really a war that's going to go on forever? I know that you've stopped calling it a war on terror, for example, but um, is it appropriate that we, that we hold these guys who were seized in 2001 during the fall of the Taliban? Uh, we're now in 2010. Um, we're apparently entrenched in Afghanistan forever. Is it appropriate? And it may well be that through the proper legal venues it would be established that, yes, actually, this is an extremely long conflict. And therefore, these guys are going to spend an extremely long time as prisoners of war. Um, but, you know, they would at least be given some of the rights that prisoners of war are allowed to have, whereas these guys in Guantanamo still have virtually nothing. They yeah. still have less than prisoners, you know, than the worst guys convicted in, in federal prisons on the U.S. mainland. You know, they're not allowed to see their families. They're, they're allowed virtually no pleasures in their lives whatsoever. And yet, they've never been... Um, they've never been judged objectively. They've only been judged, like Liz Cheney said, you know, in, uh, in George Bush's brain. Right. George Bush decided they were bad guys. No proof was required. Well, and, and two things. Uh, Cheney, I believe, has been able to create a monstrous catch-22 that Joseph Heller uh, would, you know, say, I could only imagine, uh, you know, what, what dimensions could be created. But here, and forgive my language if uh, this is offensive, but we're telling these people who've been held at Guantanamo that we fucked you up so badly through torture and this, you know, long-term detention without charge on an indefinite basis that we can't let you go, even if you were innocent when you got there. And so, you know, we've created this mechanism that most Americans uh, on a gut level unfortunately respond to, it's fed by the media. It's fed by spineless political leaders. And the only real coherent thinking, Andy, comes from the courts, from the judges who were forced to evaluate this in a purely rational way. And they describe things, well, this is a mosaic of second and third hand hearsay that you're using to detain this individual. And I'm sorry, that doesn't measure up to our standards. By the way, these are the standards that we say we are fighting to preserve. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, you know. I mean, and the thing, the, the thing is that, that although this, this is part of the story, really, um, you know, th- this discussion about, about how Guantanamo might have radicalized them. And, you know, and I certainly know from speaking to somebody who's been involved with military operations in the prison that, you know, they do regard it as a, as a serious problem, that a number of the men there ha- have indeed banded together to, um, you know, to, to oppose um, what's happened to them um, in that kind of manner. Um, I don't know how many it is. I suspect that we're not dealing with a huge number of people here. But, you know, it it goes back again to what I said. There's a hardcore of difficult cases in Guantanamo that we need sorting out. But in the meantime, we've still got nearly 200 prisoners there. And a lot of them are actually like these six guys who were sent back to Yemen before Christmas. These are not people who pose a threat to anybody. Now, the administration, you know, actually some officials conceded that they sent them back when they did, even though discussions have been ongoing with Yemen, um, for two reasons. One, that they had sent back a man in October whose release had been ordered by a district court judge, and they had no problems. They were happy with how that went. 
they also said that they figured these six guys were they were about to win their habeas corpus petitions. That the judges that you've just mentioned were about to look at their cases and were about to humiliate the government yet again um, by saying, look, on what you presented to me um, as a judge in a court of law, um, this is an absolute shambles. And this, this is, uh, you know, the usual, the usual story I have in front of me, which is that you've relied on notoriously unreliable witnesses in Guantanamo who have been either tortured, coerced or bribed. We've got second and third hand hearsay. We've got a mosaic of intelligence that doesn't stand up to scrutiny, the whole package. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, there is no problem with releasing these guys. It's certainly, you know, the, the, the shocking thing really about, about a lot of the lies that have come out of this failed plane bomber story is that people seized on these, um, these handful of Saudis who, who have apparently re-engaged or engaged for the first time in terrorism after being released. Well, they were released by George W. Bush. They weren't released by President Obama. And they were released in spite of the fact that at their military review boards, the intelligence service, services told them, we don't recommend that you release these guys. We think the dangerous people we have in this prison. So it's Bush's fault. You know, what Obama and his administration have been doing in the meantime is being exceedingly careful about who they release. It's part of the reason... They've only released 42 prisoners in this whole of the first year. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, can you imagine what it would be like if somebody that they released, uh, you know, got involved in some kind of terrorist activity? Given the complete bias that there is in U.S. society, that mistakes that are made by Republicans don't count, but ones that are made by Democrats are the worst thing that ever happened, it would be a total nightmare for them. We're talking with Andy Worthington, the author of The Guantanamo Files. He also uh, produced or co-produced and uh, was a principal in a new documentary film called Outside the Law, Stories from Guantanamo. And you can get much more at his website, andyworthington.co.uk. Now, Andy, I want to turn to uh, an article I have in front of me from the January 4th edition of the Wall Street Journal. And it includes a photograph of four men... Uh, that came from a, a video of the leadership of the group that is called Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And in the, uh, the accompanying text, it reads this way. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula's deputy commander, Saeed al-Shiri, was repatriated to Saudi Arabia in 2007 to take part in a government-run rehabilitation program. The group's chief cleric, Ibrahim Suleiman, Al-Rabaish, I guess, also was repatriated by the Bush administration to Saudi Arabia before crossing the border into Yemen. So that confirms the point that you just made, that uh, these decisions were made under the Bush administration. Now, Dick Cheney, I, I, I haven't heard him say this, but I can imagine him saying, well, it's some liberal judges who forced us to do that. Uh, <laughs> most of those judges were appointed by George W. Bush. But in particular... What can you tell us about al-Shiri and uh, al-Afi, Mohammed al-Awfi, because uh, they are described as former Guantanamo detainees? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, from what I know, they are former Guantanamo detainees. And, you know, and, and I must say, first of all, the courts had absolutely no involvement in the release of these men. They were released in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, they were released as a result of, you know, a diplomatic arrangement between the U.S. government and the Saudi government. Okay. It's completely about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, they trusted the Saudis to, to uh, undertake a thorough rehabilitation program. 
And I have to say, the Saudis have been remarkably successful. Um, you know, the figures that I've seen quoted, the maximum number of people who, um, you know, were, were not um, deprogrammed as a result of this um, is about a dozen people. Well, that sounds like a lot, but it's 10% of the Saudis that were returned that went through the program. What's 10% compared to the recidivism rate um, of federal prisoners in the, in the, on the U.S. mainland, which the figure is what, 60 or 70%? In California, our state prison system has a re- recidivism rate of, I believe, 72%. Right, well, there you go. But, you know, it's a magic word, terrorism, so everybody thinks they're going to blow up, you know, they're going to do another 9-11. Now, I have no doubt that these people mean harm. These people will, if they can, undertake a terrorist act, which is horrible because it kills civilians. Um, but are these men capable? I don't know. I don't, I don't think that, from what I've read about them, that they're, um, that they're particularly high-level or competent organizers. You know, um, it, may be, it may be that they were radicalized by what happened to them. It may well be that they were actually quite involved in the al-Qaeda philosophy, um, you know, before they were captured. That these were, these were some of the guys where they got the right people, and they shouldn't have let them go. Um, but it's a small number of people, and what's, what's horrible about how this story was interpreted, that when, when ABC News first broke it, they didn't check their facts. So they, they started off by saying, here's a couple of guys who are, who are big in the leadership of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. These are the guys who, who effectively set up the man who tried to blow up the plane. Now, that link has not been established. But even if this guy was linked with this group, they identified two Saudis, and one of them had already handed himself in to the Yemeni authorities in February last year, um, a full five months before this Nigerian guy arrived in Yemen. Mm -hmm. So he had nothing to do uh, with this alleged plot. So we're left with one Saudi and this other religious leader that you mentioned. Now, you know, the the problem with the terror label is that even one single recidivist is regarded by everybody as the worst nightmare. And I agree, it's not pleasant. But we're not talking about releasing Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about releasing important players in a jigsaw puzzle that will lead to the most devastating terrorist attack. What we're talking about, I think, are kind of you know, almost like would-be insurgents. And, you know, you just have to deal with that. If I could draw the analogy once more with the criminal justice system, you know, people who are good with guns get put in prison, and when they come out of prison, some of them get hold of these guns again. They cause havoc in our cities. But, you know, the only way that you can possibly say, how are we going to make sure that none of this happens, is by doing what I said earlier, which is the most right-wing notion of what you could possibly do, which is that once you're put in prison for anything related to, to any kind of violence, it has to be for life. Yeah, that nobody would ever be released under any circumstances. And, uh, you know, and I, I, personally, I think that that's intolerable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it, I'm sure that there are people who I could talk to who would think that. I'm sure that we're drifting further towards this point of view because we've lost, we've lost the kind of equilibrium of our moral compass and of our understanding of, of how the law actually works to adequately protectors while also protecting our general liberties. We've, we've, we're losing track of things that were fought so hard for for hundreds of years to prevent excessive punishment and arbitrary detention um, and all these kinds of things. And, and people are sleepwalking into it. And they're not informed. 
you know, you know as well as I do, Peter, that when, when you know, when the right-wing hosts start blasting all this stuff out, and when people are shouting about this and that and who they hate and why they should do this to them, this isn't informed thought. This is a kind of, you know, bubbling away in a, in a state of permanent anger, um, directing at things. It's a, it's, a, it's a brutal way of thinking and living. Um, and it's not a world that I'm happy to be living in. Well, you made an important point in discussing recidivism and uh, the crime and punishment processes here in the United States already, because we have reached the point where people demand life sentences for crimes that didn't involve the taking of a life. They demand death sentences for people who committed crimes that did not involve the taking of a life. And so we have gotten way out of kilter in any kind of rational scale of matching punishment with the crime. And when we get the highly publicized, magnified, and hyped uh, uh, events of terrorism or attempted terrorism, then people, they they don't have any room left in, in the chart. Uh, and so they they seek uh, they say nuke them uh, you know they lock them up forever uh, you know run them over with bulldozers I mean people have irrational responses because we've gotten irrational about less deadly crime. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. You know, but I, I you know I do wonder what's feeding the um, the anger and the violence so so incessantly, you know, and the the um, the obsessive desire to. To punish, I do, and I mean, I, I ask that. Um, I ask that as a, as somebody who was brought up as a Christian. I'm not a practicing Christian, but I was brought up with Christian values, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I find this strange, Peter. Most of these people who are saying these things would profess to be Christians. Yeah, you know, they seem to have missed uh, most of the central messages of the Christianity that I was brought up with. You mean like that line, "Judge not, lest ye be judged." Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> there, are, there are quite a few things in there that are supposed to be about about understanding and, and compassion. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not by any means saying that, that you know, that we don't have to be um, strict on wrongdoing. But but I, I do think that the, the desire for vengeance seems to be spiraling out of control. Yeah, it's off and, the scale. And terrorism is one of the things that really drives the most extreme edges of it, you know, as we've seen with this with this, the story of this bomber when so many people wanted him to be waterboarded. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years ago, um, you know, uh, having the FBI talk to him would have been okay. And, you know, and to my mind, having the FBI talk to him is still okay. Because when you talk to these, uh, these FBI guys who know how to interrogate people, um, you know, they say, well, actually, you know, the last thing that you want to do with a Muslim is to strip him of his clothes. Let's not even get into the waterboarding. The last thing that you want to do is humiliate him and strip him of his clothes if you want him to cooperate with you. Well, and, and your you point... you want him to cooperate with you? No, we're in a bully boy mentality now. We're right. only beating the crap out of people. We'll get him to tell you anything. When did that work? Well, and as you pointed out, the calls were immediate that he should be waterboarded or tortured to cough up whatever else he knows. But from all accounts, he's been quite honest and open, and most of the things he said have proven to be accurate. So yeah, it, it doesn't appear that torture is necessary in the case of uh, a, you know, a fervent jihadist, uh, as this Nigerian appears to be. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, I think that, that maybe some people would say, oh, yeah, but he was only a small fish. What about the big guys? But, you know, we've spent eight years building up the big guys into these kind of superhumans. I mean, seriously, do you think that if you did any of this stuff to 
Dick Cheney or David Addington that they wouldn't break? Yes, they would. Pick the, pick the toughest guys that you can think of in America and say, you want to go through the stuff that we did to these bad guys for all these years. And do you think, do you think what's going to happen to you? You're going to break? You're going to tell the truth? No, you're just going to come up with anything to get it to stop. What would be the way to get you to, to actually talk? Well, maybe when you expected the worst, you don't get the worst. You get somebody who's psychologically shrewd, who puts you on the spot and says, you're not going anywhere. You know, nobody's setting you free. You're never leaving. Do you want to cooperate? What will it take to get you co to cooperate? Are you going to play mind games with me? I'm going to play mind games with you because I may be a lot more clever than you think. You know, I think this is driven by people who don't credit human intelligence. They're just violent bully boys. That's, mm -hmm. that's you know, and that's a sad indictment, you know, because that's not, that's not an elevated way of being a human being, is just to think that brute violence is the only way that things work. It really isn't. Now, Andy, returning to this account from the uh, Wall Street Journal, they single out Ayman uh, Batarfi, a Yemeni doctor who was one of the six who was uh, sent back to Yemen in December. And he told Pentagon interrogators he had met Osama bin Laden twice in Afghanistan and had been during, in Tora Bora during the U.S. assault there in late 2001. And then without uh, citing a source here, it asserts that he had said that he had assisted a Malaysian microbiologist in acquiring uh, what they thought was anthrax. And uh, goes on to say that Batarfi and the five others all denied ties to al-Qaeda or the Taliban and pledged not to pick up arms against the U.S. Uh, as they were returned. Uh, what else can you tell us about Batarfi? And is he being unfairly singled out here as, uh, again, a potential recidivist? Um, oh, I would say that there's absolutely no doubt that he's being... being um, singling him out as a recidivist is, is lunacy. I mean, this man's a doctor. Um, the whole issue with, with Ayman Batafi and with another of the, of the Yemenis who was released, Jamal Mari, um, I, briefly I'll just say Jamal Mari was um, kidnapped from his house 12 days after 9-11 in Karachi, Pakistan, and was flown to Jordan, where he was held for four months. He said he wasn't tortured there, but he was hidden from the Red Cross, was then flown to Guantanamo. Now, both these guys were involved in a Saudi charity called Al-Wafa, which was based in Kabul, but had branches um, around the area, which was involved in humanitarian aid. Now, what the U.S. authorities got into their head, and I don't know where this came from or whether there was any truth in it, was that Al-Wafa was involved in, um, in the search for chemical and biological weapons that could be used by Al-Qaeda. Um, and so, you know, they had at one point a couple of dozen people in Guantanamo who were involved in Al-Wafa. Now, most of them were people who went out there to deliver sacks of rice to, to people less fortunate than, than themselves mm -hmm. and clearly had nothing to do with the upper echelons of the organization. But they had the director there, a Saudi. They released him a couple of years ago. They had Batafi, who was a doctor. They had this guy, Jamal Mari, who was responsible for buying medical equipment in Karachi. Other people... I don't think that at any point they could establish that what they thought was the case actually was the case. Um, you know, and the thing with Batafi is that he'd, he'd become involved in, in Al-Wafa after he'd gone to Afghanistan to help people who were suffering. He'd ended up in Tora Bora as a result of um, fleeing from Jalalabad and trying to sort out how to keep some medical equipment um, at the time that Afghanistan was falling, and, had, and had, you know, met Osama bin Laden there. He was told to go and meet the man in the mountains. He didn't know it was going to be him. Um, you know, when he did, he got caught up in there, and he, he ended up helping 
as a doctor with everything that had been happening there. So, you know, if there was, a, if there was an anthrax plot, then let's have the evidence. There apparently was no anthrax plot, or they couldn't find the evidence. That's the way that it works. If you can't find the evidence, we, as far as we're concerned, it doesn't exist. Let the guy go. That's what they've done. Um, you know, but I mean, as I say, both of these guys, you know, there were no allegations in the first place that they were involved in any, any kind of militancy. What do you think is going to happen now? The doctor's going to start training on a gun? You know, I, I find that really, really rather unlikely. Well, and uh, in your article that I recommend to people at andyworthington.co.uk, you go into some detail about Judge Emmett Sullivan. And let me just read one quote that you published. I'm not going to continue to tolerate indefinite delay on the part of the United States government. I mean, this Guantanamo issue is a travesty. It ranks up there with the internment of Japanese-American citizens years ago. It's a horror story in the American system of jurisprudence. And quite frankly, I'm not going to buy into an extended indefinite delay of this man's stay at Guantanamo or anyone else on my calendar. So here's a judge who is sworn to uphold our Constitution and uh, to defend and protect it, and uh, by inference to defend and protect us, who uh, is seriously outraged and he also accused the government of hiding uh, evidence that indicated the innocence of uh, Al Batarfi. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and just to give a little bit more context, I mean, this was back at the end of March last year when his habeas corpus petition had come up in front of the judge. We'd already had all these months in which, you know, in which he, the judge had become increasingly fed up because the Justice Department was not providing necessary materials, exculpatory materials, to the defense team, um, and they eventually, I think, found some shocking document which pretty clearly demonstrated um, that he was an innocent man. Um, and the judge very obviously was, was on the verge of granting uh, Batafi's habeas petition, and the government went away. Um, the Justice Department did an expedited review of his case and said, um, actually, we don't need to carry on with this habeas petition now because we've decided that we're going to release him. And the judge said, I want a progress report every 14 days because I don't trust you guys. I think this is just another attempt for you to keep him in custody. How many 14 days elapsed over the next nine months until Ayman Batafi was actually released back to Yemen? Hmm. Just amazing. You know, you know how, it, how it is with these stories. When you start to look at these stories a bit, you come across people like Ayman Batafi who, where, where you just think, these people who are talking about terrorists, who are talking about recidivists, who are talking about these people who are um, desperate to blow up airplanes to kill us all, can we contrast this a little bit with the individual stories of the human beings who make up this monstrous experiment that's been going on for eight years? Because clearly amongst them you're going to find um, a few wild types with, with desperate antisocial violent tendencies who, who mean us harm. But in amongst them, you are also going to find that once you strip away just the statistical um, aspects of things, just the attempts to dehumanize them, which was what the Bush administration intended, you find human beings who are in the wrong place at the wrong time, like Ayman Batafi and like Jamal Mari, the guy that I mentioned, who 12 mm -hmm. days after 9-11 was kidnapped from his house in Karachi and, and taken to Yemen. And let's just offer one other case uh, example. 
And I invite people to go to your website and read the post from December 31st, Why Obama Must Continue Releasing Yemenis from Guantanamo. But you cite the case of Riyadh al-Haf, and it's pure mistaken identity. Yeah. Yeah, they um, confused him with another man that they had in their custody. <laughs> because, they, I mean, you know, this, this has happened quite a lot. You, you would think that it's... Um, that, it, that, you know, how could that possibly happen? You've got 779 people. Surely it can't be possible to uh, make mistakes about who's who, but they, they did it on many occasions. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, uh, I would say as well, actually, if we do just have a moment to talk about... Sure, go ahead. ...one of the other cases. There's, there's a case of a young man called Farouk Ali Ahmed, um, you know, who, who was accused of being a bodyguard for Osama bin Laden, um, who's, who was accused of, um, of being a guard at a private airport used by Osama bin Laden. Um, and he said that he went to um, Afghanistan to teach the Koran to children. Um, and in his tribunal, um, the, the three military representatives decided that he, he wasn't an enemy combat and he could continue to be held. But what was particularly interesting about his case was that the the man assigned to represent him in place of a lawyer, a personal representative, who was a member of the military, um, he thought there was something fishy about the story, and he investigated it. And he discovered um, that this whole claim that he'd been a guard at, at Bin Laden's airport had been produced by um, one, of, one of this guy's fellow prisoners. And he discovered by looking in the files, you know, something that to this day we... We, the people, don't have access to any of this kind of material. He had access to material um, where he went through the various files and discovered that one particular prisoner had lied about 60 prisoners in total. Hmm. Now, this is quite a famous story, and, I mean, this is the one that, when the judges have been able to look at the evidence in the habeas corpus petitions, they've been finding this guy turning up over and over again, telling lies about people. They all keep finding out what this personal representative found in 2004, I mean, it took another five years for this, this guy to be released. That, you know, and it was easy to establish this because there was one narrative in which people who may have gone to fight with the Taliban would say, look, I turned up in, um, you know, July 2001. Um, I went to the training camp and then, it, and then, you know, it closed down. And then, you know, and then I tried to get out of Afghanistan. And that's the end of the story. Um, but here's this guy turning up. Here's the snitch turning up saying, no, 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 I saw him in May 2000 and he was sitting with Osama bin Laden. Mm. All this stuff just lies over and over again. Um, and so, you know, when this young man was finally released, I mean, that to me, that brought to an end a particularly poignant chapter because this liar had been pinpointed so long ago, back in 2004, by a member of the U.S. military, mm. And, you know, these personal representatives that were appointed, a lot of them couldn't care less about the guys they were representing. Yeah. You know, they weren't lawyers. They weren't appointed to actually do a proper job. They were, you know, the whole process was about rubber stamping these men's prior designation as enemy combatants so they could be held forever. And it was only a few of them who actually took their job seriously and investigated it. Um, you know, so I was relieved that in the end... Um, you know, what this, what this military representative, this personal representative had discovered so long ago, you know, had finally been acknowledged, I think, really, by the Obama administration when they'd been looking through the cases. Because as I said before, they're clearly not releasing people 
uh, as Bush administration did with Saudis when when he was told by his own intelligence people, uh, you know, I think you should hold off on this one. Mm-hmm. They're going through this these cases very carefully. They have no intention of, of releasing anybody who might pose a danger. And there are, you know, many more Yemenis in Guantanamo, not by any means all of the uh, 86 is what I think it is by, by my reckoning okay. that are still held. It's by no means all of them. There are dangerous people in there. Ramzi bin al-Sheib is one of the Yemenis, for example. But there are others, you know, maybe dozens, maybe less. But there are plenty of other people in Guantanamo who are insignificant, who are people wrongly detained, who are people who are still waiting, really, for their opportunity um, to go before a judge to have the, the, the evidence examined, or are waiting for, I think, President Obama to have shown a little bit more courage than he's shown this week, where yet again he's capitulated to a bunch of shouting from people who don't actually care about the facts. Indeed, that's true, and regrettably so. Andy, uh, what would you like to add as we wrap up here about uh, where we are now and if there's a prospect of returning to a rational approach to these issues? Well, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, every time that we seem to be be getting some kind of progress, another obstacle is thrown up. Um, you know, Obama announced his plans to, to move a number of prisoners to the U.S. mainland, to this prison in Illinois. And, um, you know, I was concerned about uh, many aspects of that story because he wasn't talking about transferring the men who were going to face federal court trials, which at the moment is just um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his alleged co-conspirators in the 9-11 attacks mm-hmm. and a Tanzanian who's already in New York. It was the people who were going to face this second-tier level of trials, the military commissions. Um, now, I don't approve of the military commissions. I don't think we, we have two tiers of justice. We have just the one, um, and they should face federal court trials, um, not, not this second-rate system where they, they're doing it because they think it will be easier to get a, a successful prosecution. Mm-hmm. The other people that, that they mentioned wanting to move um, were this, this shadowy group of people who they, um, you know, they say, well, they're too dangerous for us to release them, but we can't prosecute them because uh, the evidence is tainted. Um, well, I worry that that means the evidence was produced through torture, and therefore tainted is one of the words that you could use to describe it, but also unreliable is, is another one that I would use. Um, and, you know, it's not a story that we've seen the end of, because a lot of these guys have still got habeas corpus petitions pending, and judges will be able to provide some of the objectivity that the administration itself seems to be incapable of. Um, but, you know, the money hasn't been forthcoming. It's been blocked to, to buy the prison and to get this in motion. Um, I've seen reports suggesting that it may not happen until 2011. So that actually gives the administration another year perhaps at the most, to think, well, is there anything else that we can do with these people? And I would hope that if we can put pressure on them, if we can get out the stories of some of these men, then, you know, maybe in new homes in other countries, that, that steady process of finding places will, will be possible. And also maybe um, this project that started in Amherst, Massachusetts, where, where the townspeople there asked to adopt a couple of people from Guantanamo, maybe we can build on that. And we can encourage communities around the United States to say, look, 
if we're holding wrongfully imprisoned innocent people at Guantanamo who can't go home because they're from countries with terrible human rights records, we need to be able to accept them in the United States. And at the moment, what's stopping us is, is Congress. They've said, no way are you bringing anybody who's been cleared for release onto the U.S. mainland. Right. We're going to actually ask Daniel Fried to trawl around the world endlessly, clocking up more air miles than anybody in history, trying to persuade other countries to take them when those other countries will be given money to do so and will be encouraged not to say, why are you asking us to do this when you won't take any of these people yourself? And I would love that to become an issue next year. I have no great hope that it will, but I think at least um, trying to bring the discussion forward amongst the American people to say, there are guys who are going to rot in Guantanamo who have been cleared by everybody who's looked at their cases has cleared them. The courts, the Bush administration did, Obama has. These guys shouldn't be here, but they can't go home. Maybe we in America should take responsibility for what we did and invite some of these people in. Because, you know, I think that would not only help to close it, but it would also demonstrate um, in the most, um, most extraordinary way possible that these are human beings and that, and that you would end up, as I have with my experiences of released prisoners in Guantanamo, realize that these are human beings who were not terrorists. They never were terrorists. And, and I think that the proximity and the ability to see these people as real people who were seized by mistake would do more than anything to puncture this propaganda that Cheney and the right-wingers are still able to use. Andy Worthington, I always appreciate talking with you. Thanks for your time today. The book, The Guantanamo Files, is available here in the U.S., and you can visit his website anytime, andyworthington.co.uk. Andy, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. The Peter B. Collins Show is sponsored by The Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by The Organic Wine Company since 1980. Click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com. They've got a very special introductory offer for you, the Peter B. Collins listener. Well, we just spent a while talking with Andy Worthington about the crimes of torture and detention that occurred under the Bush administration and are difficult to resolve under the Obama administration. In a moment, we'll talk with attorney Charlotte Dennett. Her new book is The People vs. Bush. And she's talking about accountability for torture and other crimes committed by Bush, Cheney, et al. Here we go, starting another war. We got our heads up our asses. You know, we're really bored. Hey, hey, we're the Republicans. And people say we act like clowns. We love natural disasters. Did somebody really drown? We lie whenever we want to. Oh, they did. Yeah, you know it's true. And if you don't believe us, turn on the nightly news. And people say we act like clowns We just steal elections Run the country into the ground Now that little ditty is aimed at the Republicans But on this program we don't protect anybody And some of those same charges sadly now apply to the Obama administration We'll discuss as we're joined by Charlotte Dennett 
a journalist first, uh, then she became a lawyer, and she ran for the post of Attorney General of the state of Vermont in 2008, in part inspired by the work of Vincent Bugliosi, who's appeared on this program several times to talk about his book calling for the trial of George W. Bush for murder. Her new book, Just Out, is called The People v. Bush, One Lawyer's Campaign to Bring the President to Justice and the National Grassroots Movement She Encounters Along the Way. Charlotte spells her last name Dennett, D-E-N-N-E-T-T. Charlotte, welcome to our program today. Well, thank you. You know, this is my first interview. Well, I'm happy to be. <laughs> I'm happy to break you in. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, I just want to prepare you for one thing. Uh, I actually read the book, and most of the people who will interview you will use a cheat sheet from the publisher, have a producer highlight a few passages. Uh, but they probably won't read uh, in detail what you've written, so please be prepared for that. Well, that's fine. I, I'm used to it. I, I did have a previous book um, called I Will Be Done, and I, I do know how that, that happens, but mm-hmm. I'm bracing myself. Great. Well, uh, as I told you before we went on the air here, uh, I was touched by your book in a number of ways. First of and foremost, I'm one of those people who counts himself a member of the accountability movement, and I won't quit. Uh, We've recently done some coverage of the war crimes trials in Argentina that are occurring 30 to 35 years after the crimes that were committed. And uh, I will really embrace the same commitment that we need to have accountability for the wrongdoing, the unconstitutional and criminal behavior that clearly occurred uh, and was intentional, was overt, not accidental, not errors of omission, uh, under Bush, Cheney, Addington, and uh, that gang that uh, reigned and uh, ransacked Washington uh, in the early part of this decade. And uh, I want to start with Vince Bugliosi because uh, he came to my studio, and I'm sure you've had the same reaction. Uh, he was the best-dressed guy who has come to my uh, little low-rent uh, nonprofit <laughs> furniture studio. And uh, he came in well-dressed and with a stack of yellow legal pads. He doesn't do the computer thing, and uh, he writes all his books in longhand, and somebody else types them up for him. And he proceeded to take over the program. Uh, I was able to get a few words in and uh, occasionally pepper him with a quick question to prompt his next uh, monologue. And I say that not with any sense of offense, because he had a lot to say, and he made a brilliant case that Bush is culpable for a charge of murder based on U.S. law. And uh, I kind of erroneously said, oh, this is like the felony murder rule, right? The guy who drives the getaway car is just as culpable as the guy who pulled the trigger. And he said, no, this is a deeper uh, uh, legal concept. And he also pointed out in his book that uh, any uh, sitting prosecutor or state attorney general could, in fact, file charges, at least under most state constitutions, of the kind that he described. So tell our listeners how you encountered Bugliosi's book and how it inspired you as you were running for attorney general as a progressive party candidate in 2008. It began when a very close friend of mine uh, told me that there was this book that, that was now a bestseller called The Prosecution of George W. Bush for murder, and she she almost whispered it when she said it to me. And I thought, well, that's a provocative title. And because I have been both a journalist and a lawyer, I think that's why she knew that I would be interested. 
But she also knew that I had uh, been convinced by the Progressive Party to run for Attorney General. And so all she did is just put the book in my hands, and she said to me, there's something in there about what we can do in our different states. And I thought, well, what is she talking about? So a few days later, I started reading the book, and I came to that section in the book, having first read out all the evidence uh, for the crime of murder. And I thought, hmm, he's making a pretty good case here. He's got it well-documented, lots of footnotes. And then he went into the legal arguments. And uh, again, I, I was impressed uh, how he had um, mastered the arguments. And when I got to this point where it said any state state's attorney or any attorney general could actually do this prosecution, it just oh, stopped me. Um, right in my, well, I wasn't in my tracks, I was sitting in the car in New York City, but I just stopped reading and I thought, my God, who's going to dare do that? Um, and then I thought, wait a minute, I don't ha- have a job to risk. I am running for the position of attorney general. And then I started thinking about the fact that Vermont, what better place would, would be uh, to have this happen than in Vermont because, well, several reasons. Number one, um, Vermont has uh, a, a lot of animus towards Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty of polls out there that were showing that over 60% of the people of Vermont uh, were very much opposed to the Iraq War. And also, uh, there had been something like 37 town meetings had voted on town meeting day to impeach him. Right. And also, I did know a sadder element, which is that although Vermont is a small state, we have the highest per capita deaths of soldiers in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And so I put all those together, and I thought, well, what better place to give it a try than in uh, what Calvin Coolidge once described as the brave little state of Vermont. So that's how it started. Yeah, And, and a just, lot of just things a, fell a, into place incredibly well uh, after I'd made the decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Vincent Bugliosi was actually flying east uh, within a week after I had read the book, and uh, to be at a, a conference on prosecuting war criminals. Yeah. And a friend of mine had uh, uh, Christina Borges, and the, the journalist. Mm-hmm. Her, her she she appeared she appeared on a recent podcast on our program. If oh, people he, want to look that up, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Well, her publicist uh, Eileen Proctor mm-hmm. uh, was also helping Vincent Bugliosi, so I was able to get a hold of him very quickly. And uh, we met on the phone first and then met personally a week later. And then very shortly after that, he came up to Vermont and uh, helped me launch uh, my campaign. And just a couple of sidebars. One is that my grandfather was from South Burlington, and I've spent some time in Vermont. I have a lot of love for the Green Mountain State and also the rugged independence that comes from these town hall meetings and uh, the the real sense, I think, of... Uh, of uh, I don't know, the history of the Green Mountain Boys, and uh, there's just so much there. That's right. You're right. We we love Vermont for so many different reasons, but I do think that one of the main reasons is because we're still small, um, we we have a feeling, a a sense of community, and then you combine that with, the the, as you describe it, the rugged independence, Mm -hmm. and it just makes it a, a very delightful place to live and work. And about the time that you were reaching out to Vince Bugliosi, um, I encountered him and Eileen Proctor, who were stalled at a checkpoint 
in Denver at the Democratic National Convention. Mm. And uh, I was able to go inside, get an extra credential, and uh, get them through. Uh, and one of the things that Vince was there for was hoping that uh, with the sea change promised by the Obama candidacy, that Democrats and the media would be interested in his theories about how to bring accountability for Bush since impeachment had been uh, uh, rashly taken off the table by Nancy Pelosi and others. And uh, he met just a stone wall, a brick wall. And he recounted to me that for each of his prior books, he's, he's a best-selling author, Helter Skelter and others that people know about, he, he said, you know, they used to invite me on the Today Show, fly me out, limo me in, he said uh, they won't even reference this book in passing. And uh, I worked behind the scenes with Eileen and others to uh, get Vince uh, guest slots on mainstream media uh, talk shows, mostly radio. Uh, but still, there was great resistance. And uh, this whole sense that Obama has put forward that I find so offensive and insulting that we must look forward and not backward is a slap in the face of anyone who values our Constitution and who believes that serious wrongdoing has to be approached in a serious manner and cannot be written off as a political uh, uh, you know, obstacle or something that is too difficult to undertake. After all, we don't take uh, vast categories of, of criminal behavior and say, oh, you know, we're going to give rape a year off. Because, uh, you know, it's just too much trouble and it's so much pain for the victim and all that. And it will just be better off if we don't prosecute rape for a year. Well, you know, when Obama said that, I think that was one of the, the earliest indications that there might be a problem uh, in his administration. Because he said that very famous uh, statement, which I think will eventually come back to haunt him. Um, he said that while he was still uh, president-elect, if not candidate uh, Obama. I guess, no, he was president-elect yet. But, um, yes, that, that, that has caused a great deal of consternation. And when I say it may come back to haunt him, I just noticed that in the New York Times, just about a week ago, they had come out with an editorial uh, where uh, they said, that, and I'm going to quote from here, the rule of law rests on scrutinizing evidence of past behavior to establish accountability confer justice, and deter bad behavior in the future. That's the whole point of the accountability movement. And uh, much as I think uh, the powers that be would like to see this movement go away, um, I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's going to keep growing. People have to be patient. A lot of people have sort of held out and wished Obama the benefit of the doubt. Um, they can't quite believe that he's been adopting a lot of the same policies as his predecessor. Or extending them, as in the case of the state secret privilege. Yes, exactly. Yep. I know. It's, it's very sad. His Department of Justice has um, argued that, you know, for instance, the Federal Appeals Court should dismiss a lawsuit that had been brought by detainees who had been kidnapped um, on the basis of state secrets, and that's very serious. And... You know, it keeps on happening. That's what's, what's of concern to us. Uh, I think, as my book, People vs. Bush, um, analyzes, you have to look at who is advising Obama to understand fully where he's coming from. And, of course, he does have some people who were serving in the Bush administration now. You mean like John Brennan? Brennan being a big one. Well, his, his fingerprints are on some of the files over there at the CIA. Mm-hmm. 
related to detention and torture and rendition and the black sites and so much else that we may not even know uh, diddly about. Well, that's why I, um, in the book, I do compare Obama to President Kennedy in that um, they were both uh, freshman senators. They didn't know very much about foreign policy. And they get into office and they suddenly realize that um, there are people more powerful than they are. Uh, And I honestly don't know at this point how much awareness Obama had of that going in. Um, but certainly uh, he has reversed himself in a lot of areas. And yeah, it's interesting if you watch Fox News and then you watch MSNBC, because they're both saying the same thing, but from a different point of view, that Obama has made all these promises and now he's breaking them. And um, I think he's, he's going to suffer for it, unfortunately. Well, and Charlotte, this failure to pursue accountability in some way, shape, or form, and you go into detail in the book about your Vermont Senator Leahy, who tried to chart a middle course with a truth commission and explicitly said that he wouldn't subpoena Dick Cheney if, if uh, Cheney refused to testify. Uh, you know, we saw that, that there were efforts to find a middle ground, but... I'm not satisfied even with that, because this is not something that is optional. And likewise, I did not feel that impeachment was some political option that the Democrats could weigh and say, well, not now, not here, not in this case, we're at war, and they may not have really meant it, and it'll bog down our agenda. I mean, these things are not matters of choice. And John Nichols, in his book about impeachment, uh, detailed that, I think, in a very clear way. He did. He did a beautiful job. And uh, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I will bet you that the vast majority of your, reader, of your listeners feel the same way, that torture, for instance, is a crime. And uh, murder is a crime. And uh, the fact that Bush sent our troops to war on false pretenses um, is at the heart of the criminal charge against him. And we can't just let them get away with it and and shredding the constitution in the process it many of us have uh, vowed to keep pursuing this and i would say by the way that today uh, a group that i'm involved with of lawyers and journalists and advocates we've just filed a freedom of information request with the department of justice um, demanding the release of the uh, long-suppressed uh, Office of Professional Responsibility report, namely the, the, an ethics report on the behavior of Bush's lawyers. So we just filed that today, and if people want to see the request, they can go to the website lawsnotmen.org, and you will see it reproduced. And what we're, we're insisting on is that... Um, the Obama administration has been holding back this report. It was first completed in December 2008, and it was apparently a scathing indictment uh, showing that the Bush lawyers were effectively, um, to use the term, memoing up. They were, they were covering up for their superiors who had authorized torture. Mm-hmm. And it was such a scathing report that uh, then-Attorney General under Bush, Michael Mukasey, insisted uh, on not only letting the subjects of the report get to see it, but he rebutted it. We're asking for that report. We don't know what, on what authority he can do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other 
part is that there's been a new report. We suspect it's going to be watered down, uh, but it's time that that report be released. The last time Attorney General Holder uh, said that he would release it was in the end of uh, November. So here we are in January still waiting. It's almost as if everything is timed. You know, everything is politically timed. And I understand that Obama has a great deal on his plate right now. I do understand that. But the longer we wait on this to, to find out how these lawyers, who were the people that crafted the torture policy, the longer we wait, the more, you know, the, I think they're going to hope that it goes away. It will not go away. Yeah. Well, I applaud you for this effort. The letter is co-signed by Andy Worthington, who appeared on the segment before you. David Swanson is involved in this effort. He'll be on a forthcoming podcast next week. Uh, his new book is uh, a very strong blueprint. It's called Daybreak, uh, Fighting the Imperial Presidency. Presidency, And uh, he has been a stalwart in the uh, After Downing Street movement, the pro-impeachment movement. Uh, we worked together at uh, Camp Democracy in Washington uh, back in uh, 2004. And uh, he's a guy who I, I truly admire, a tireless uh, a fighter for our rights. Now, Charlotte, let's take a moment to talk about the political campaign that you engaged in. Uh, you were a novice, and you were recruited by the Progressive Party. And uh, after you thought about running, you kind of crystallized your thinking about uh, making a cornerstone of your campaign, this effort to bring accountability to Bush using the Buliosi motto. Uh, tell us a little bit about what kind of response you got from the citizens of Vermont, the media, and uh, your Democratic opponent, the incumbent, Mr. Sarl. Well, initially, we had our press conference, and I was quite surprised at how even-handed the media was. Uh, then, uh, of course, it began to sink in, I suppose, uh, because after that initial press conference, I got very little media. Uh, what the press did is they interviewed my opponent, uh, who was the incumbent attorney general, a Democrat named William Sorrell, and he just poo-pooed everything. He just said, uh, it's impossible. You can't do it in Vermont. Vermont doesn't have jurisdiction. And besides, um, Bush has never set foot in Vermont. Um, and he's right about that. Bush never had. We're the only state in the nation where Bush has not visited. Uh, and he knows he's not welcome here, quite frankly. But um, apart from that, what was disturbing... But, but those, those were specious arguments. That's like saying he wasn't wearing white socks. Well... You know, here's the thing. Yeah, Bugliosi, for one thing, is, is um, someone who knows all too well that the person doesn't have to be at the murder scene. I mean, that's how he nailed uh, uh, Manson in the Manson killing, the, the famous killing of Sharon Tate. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, he's, he, he knows how to marshal uh, the right legal ar arguments as to why someone can be out of state and still be held responsible, even out of state, not just at the crime scene. Right. Um, and I go into all of those, uh, I, the, those arguments in the book. But the point is, is that Sorrell, um, all he had to do is just re reproduce the specious argument, and the, the media just sort of laid on flat. Mm -hmm. That was very frustrating. At one point, we, got, uh, we tried to challenge him to a debate. And he wouldn't. And so we stood outside the attorney general's office. Uh, Vince was, was visiting. He came back. He flew back to, to help me later in my campaign. And, um, you know, it, and we had put out a press release saying, we are going to debate uh, Sorrell on the question of jurisdiction, whether um, Bush can be in, 
um, indicted in Vermont and tried. And only one mainstream media showed up, and they kept going at us on, on other ancillary issues. They refused to deal with the issue of jurisdiction. And then they ended the press conference saying, Sorrell says it can't happen in Vermont. And that's it. I mean, there was just no effort to try to understand the arguments. I have on my webpage, shardennett.org, um, frequently asked questions. And people can go there and see all the different um, obstacles that the powers that be will try to put up and our answers to them, because it can be done in a state. And uh, we're still looking for someone. Vincent has um, a couple of people in mind, but nothing has been absolutely nailed down. And all you need is uh, a soldier's family who's, uh, who lost a son mm-hmm. or a daughter in their state, and you can bring a, uh, an indictment, or you can ask for an indictment. And um, my frequently asked questions show you how. So that's one way that average citizens can really uh, keep up the pressure. And, and one thing I really have to commend Bugliosi for is he says in his book, you know, all these journalists, and I'm a journalist as well, mm-hmm. uh, wrote all the, the evidence of why Bush took us to war on a lie. But then they just went on. Yeah, They didn't do anything about it. And nothing's going to happen unless we get up and do something. So I did my thing. David Swanson has been wonderful in doing his thing. You've been doing what you can. And I'm just saying that average citizens, all you have to do is just look at those frequently asked questions and you'll find a role that you can play. And uh, tell me, I, I, I haven't been to Vermont in a while, but the Burlington Free Press, <clears throat> I recall, is the dominant newspaper in the state. It was a Gannett paper, maybe still is. Um, I can't imagine that uh, they gave you more than a couple of inches uh, over the course of your campaign. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all stopped. This is something that we find. I, I um, had a conversation with Cindy Sheehan uh, at one point and found out that when she was uh, sort of the darling of anti-Bush people, you know, was camping out in front of uh, Bush's ranch, mm-hmm. she got huge coverage. But when she challenged Nancy Pelosi, um, the coverage just evaporated. It was very frustrating and difficult for her. So those of us who decide that we're going to run for office, we have to realize that initially that's what's going to happen. Well, and and let me take a moment because uh, my listeners know that I worked for Nancy Pelosi about uh, 12 years ago on one of her campaigns, and so I know her a little bit. We're not currently in touch uh, there's a, a lot of defenses around the speaker that are very hard to penetrate. Um, and I also know Cindy Sheehan quite well, and I give her credit because before she went to Crawford that summer, um, she and I spoke, and at that point I was resisting the idea of impeachment. And she changed my mind. We had, we had a great conversation. She said, Peter... You and I are old enough. We remember that uh, when Nixon was accused of crimes, that people resisted impeachment uh, initially, but that it really gained uh, momentum and was bipartisan uh, to some extent, uh, and that that's what I'm hoping to spark here. And so she <clears throat> she turned me around on that. But when she decided to challenge Pelosi um, on the air and off, I counseled her against it. 
mainly because I know what uh, Pelosi's strength is in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and she's pretty invulnerable. Nobody is totally invulnerable, but her reelect numbers have been in the 80% range, and uh, Cindy did manage to bring that down to 76% or something like that. But uh, Pelosi does have a lock on uh, the... She's a darling of the media in this town, and there's very little criticism that's leveled against her. And even when Code Pink went and picketed her house and her office, uh, the media played it down, and only when there were incidents, uh, you know, would they, you know, like the police were called or something like that, would they actually cover it. So uh, I felt that Cindy would have been better off to run against a... Uh, a Neanderthal Republican like Dan Lundgren or Richard Pombo, uh, and uh, she instead felt that, you know, this symbolic attack or, or political attack on the speaker was the route she wanted to take. And uh, so I, I, you know, I, I feel for her and I appreciate uh, the dedication that he, she has taken uh, since Casey was killed. Uh, but I do think that her idea of, of challenging Pelosi was uh, uh, difficult from the start. Well, you know, the same could be said of me, in fact. Um, that is that the incumbent was well entrenched. Although I had the feeling uh, that uh, outside of Burlington, Vermont, the biggest city, a lot of people didn't even know who the attorney general was or what the, inter- what the attorney general does. And so I was sort of hoping that, um, based on that, I might make some uh, some headway. I think one of the things that, that hurt both our campaigns is just the whole uh, Obama momentum. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody was just voting the straight Democratic Party ticket, too. Yeah. And because they wanted relief from that horrendous eight years, um, that probably had, um, had a factor in doing the straight ticket and... Uh, I don't know whether it would be the same now. Um, looking back, I'm glad I did my race. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I've learned is that everything is um, sort of cumulative. That is, it takes a few people to start things. And I learned a lot from my predecessors. Uh, this uh, In New York, uh, January 21st, I'm going to be in New York City at the 92nd Street Y, which is a, a, a good place to launch a book from. A lot of uh, political people and literati go there and present there. And I'll be with Bugliosi. is flying all the way back from uh, t- to the east to be there with me. And uh, Naomi Wolf. And mm-hmm. um, I consider both of them to be great trailblazers. And uh, there were other people before them. There will be other people after us. But you have to take the long view. And one of the people that does that is, uh, he's an international human rights lawyer. His name is Philippe Sands. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ran into him in New York. I described this in People versus. Yeah, Bush. It's, it's a great scene that you went to a bookstore to try to buy Torture Team, and uh, it was sold out, and you were walking down the street, and there is this uh, British lawyer and journalist, Philippe Sands. He's been on our program, and I think his book really uh, uh, showed us very clearly that Rumsfeld say, said to the folks at Guantanamo, hey, send me some paper to authorize the torture that yeah. I have verbally approved. Yes, yes. Um, he, he does a great job, and, uh, and, and he's so calm and, and takes the broad view. I, I ran into him in early May of uh, last spring, 
And we had just learned through the New York Times that the Obama administration was not likely to prosecute Bush's lawyers. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, the cover-up is starting already, and these guys are going to get beat, you know, they're going to get away with torture. And I, I said that to him, and uh, he said, don't worry. He said, did you hear what the, what the Spanish judges just did? And I said, no. And then I found out that not one but two, they're called judges, they're also called prosecutors. Uh, the most famous of them is, is, goes by the name Garzon, and he's the, the, um, the guy that helped to bring uh, Pinochet to, to justice, and here he is. Uh, with another judge, and they're they're going after Bush's lawyers and their superiors, and they can do it under what's called the doctrine of universal jurisdiction. And uh, Attorney General Holder knows that they are watching over him, and so if he doesn't do something, they will. And, and so and, that gives us some hope. And Charlotte, and, the Washington Post is reporting uh, today, uh, January seventh, <clears throat> that the French government is setting up a special judicial unit to investigate uh, and bring charges against people accused of genocide, war crimes, or crimes against humanity. And so maybe uh, in retaliation for Freedom Fries, uh, long-term, the French may be uh, providing a venue uh, for the justice that uh, has not been sought or brought here in the United States. Well, that's very interesting, and I look forward to reading that article. Uh, you know, the point is that we... that that we are now a global movement and justice will happen i'm absolutely convinced of it it may take time but when i ran into philippe sands um, he was saying to me he was amazed things had moved as fast as as they had mind you when uh... obama decided to release the torture memos mm -hmm. that was that was letting the cat out of the bag or you know the toothpaste out of the toothpaste tube you couldn't put it back in and I, I, I discuss that in People versus Bush. I show how, um, well, obviously how the intelligence community reacted. They were very upset. Uh, and there was a lot of sort of like um, back and forth with, with Obama and Rahm Emanuel. They, they didn't know exactly what to do once they'd done it because and, and, of and, the fear. But it's there now. And, and Charlotte, have, this, yeah. this is what's so infuriating because... There, I, I don't write off Obama entirely, because uh, with a flourish on day two, he said, we're going to close Guantanamo and sign the executive orders. I've noted since that uh, we still have the same uh, regime operating at Bagram, where many of those detained are not even from Afghanistan. They were shipped there to be held indefinitely without charge. Uh, but there are these glimmers, the release of those photos, and uh, his renewed commitment, uh, even as he backpedaled on releasing more uh, people of the Yemen nationality to their nation, uh, he said that we will close Guantanamo. Uh, at the same time, uh, the wiretapping and eavesdropping on Americans, the national security letters that the FBI itself has acknowledged have been widely abused, these uh, uh, elements from the Bush-Cheney regime remain in place and are operating in a very robust manner. Yes, the the wiretapping, wire we have no indication that it has been curtailed in any way, shape, or form. And Mark Klein, one of my personal heroes from here in San Francisco, who exposed the secret switch on Folsom Street, 
uh, has affirmed that there is no indication that the NSA has reduced its surveillance of American citizens in clear violation of the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And so how do we sort through this and how do we activate our elected leaders? Because like your meeting with Senator Leahy that you detail in the book, uh, I cornered Senator Boxer a few months ago. And I was very direct with her, and I said, I want my Fourth Amendment back. And she was a little, you know, what, what are you talking about? And I said, here's Mark Klein's book. <laughs> Understand what's going on, and, you know, that this has continued unabated. And there is no appetite among our elected leaders. They want to pat us on the head and say, well, after we get through health care, maybe we'll have time to look at that. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing that says that our government can only work on one issue at a time, and these are critical issues related to the rights of Americans. And with the Christmas Day attempt in Detroit, we're seeing a further rollback in our constitutional and privacy rights. Well, that was so eloquently put. And uh, what can I say? There has to be more of us. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, People versus Bush, uh, and you will see uh, there's ten pages in the appendix that have all the different movements that are involved. And had I known that your radio station was was doing this as well, I didn't get everybody by any means, and I'll be putting the rest of them up on my uh, website, but uh, which which is now in construction. It, it is uh, People v. Bush is, is my website. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any event... Um, yeah, and I'll be adding more and more names. And you see, once you see all those different people doing it, you suddenly realize that, uh, that we're out there, even though the media has completely uh, ignored us. I mean, at the cover of my book shows a detainee in an orange jumpsuit. I go around. He's protesting outside the Supreme Court. I show this to people. I said, did you know these demonstrations were going on? People said, no, I had no idea because the media has not done its job. So the point is, number one, we have to find each other. Number two, we've got to tell our neighbors. We've got to spread the word. We have to make this a movement of, uh, I would say, a movement of the early 21st century. And it is by, it is more than anything, it is a movement for democracy. We've got to save our country. Our country is going down the tubes. You know it. I know it. A lot of us know this. And um, what are we going to tell our, our grandkids? You know, that we're just going to let it happen? No. We have to get out there. We have to exercise what democratic rights we have left. Um, I document in People v. Bush how Congress has become horribly corrupted and emasculated, and that is tragic. But once we recognize the problem, I suggest you read, uh, people read Daybreak, uh, David Swanson's book, because he's mm-hmm. got a lot of ideas. Yes, he does. About how to restore democracy. And I also want to single out Michael Ratner, who you focus on uh, to some extent in the book. He and the attorneys at the Center for Constitutional Rights have done an incredible job under very difficult circumstances. At one point, they thought they were being entrapped by the government when they received a Valentine's card from a a soldier at Guantanamo who was giving them a complete list of those being held there, that list having been denied to CCR by the government. And so they've been through uh, some really dark passages, and Michael Ratner is a stalwart uh, defender of our rights, and I'm glad that uh, you profiled him in the book. Also, Robert Perry at ConsortiumNews.com has done a great job of analyzing and synthesizing these issues with historical context. 
And let me just add one person who I didn't see in the book that uh, is part of this movement Mm -hmm. and I have a high regard for, and that's Marjorie Cohn. She is a professor of law at uh, Thomas Jefferson in San Diego and president of the National Lawyers Guild. I've got her in the appendix. Do you? Okay. Yes. I didn't see that. But, you know, I kept... This is true. I... yeah, I had to write this book very quickly. <laughs> well, it went to press just a couple of months ago because uh, you have entries up through October of 2009. It's just coming out now, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I finished it about a month ago, and uh, I realized that there might be a, a time problem. So I've never written so fast in my life, and I knew that um, that I was, I was inevitably going to miss somebody. Fortunately, Marjorie and the National Lawyers Guild are in the appendix with all the contact info and uh, and, but you're absolutely right. I mean, they're, they're just such stellar people that have risked their careers and stuck their necks out. And I honor as many of them as I possibly can, uh, as long as they realize that, you know, I might not have been able to get everyone or do them justice. Well, Charlotte, it's a great read, too. You're an excellent writer, and you take us through the campaign and lay the groundwork for this important accountability work. And as I said, I hope that we don't follow the Argentinian model and uh, wait decades to really bring accountability, exposure, and justice. And I personally am not vindictive. I don't particularly want to see, well, I, I wouldn't object to seeing Cheney in jail, but that's not my goal. My goal is to expose the wrongdoing, make clear that uh, we don't want to see this happen again, and send a clear message to the world, including those who may be planning to put on explosive underpants in the near future, and say, look, uh, we understand the errors of our ways, we uh, are repudiating them, and we are returning to the constitutional values that we say we are waging illegal wars to preserve. Well, well, that's what we have to do, and we have to send the message loud and clear both to our elected leaders and also to uh, President Obama, who just, I think it was yesterday, talked about the need for accountability uh, with regard to this whole Detroit thing. And he, uh, he's going hes going to have a press conference later today, I believe. So people should watch what he says and see what he says about accountability, because accountability doesn't just start with him. It has, We have to move backward and sort it through, because if the, the people in the Bush administration are not brought to account, then those in power will just repeat what, what had happened before, and it's already happening, isn't it? So that's why we've got to move very quickly and, and vociferously, if I may say, um, to let them know that it's not okay, we're not going to let bygones be bygones. And these are the reasons why, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, there are a lot of people um, who 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 really believe, and I know Michael Ratner is one of them, that uh, prosecution is really the only way to send a powerful message. And I have to agree. I do an analysis in People versus Bush of what is uh, deficient with the Truth Commission idea. Well, you're absolutely correct, and we just saw this play out in the uh, reluctant dismissal by Judge Urbina of the charges against the Blackwater Group for the shoot-up at Nisour Square. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they used the Oliver North model uh, of tainting the testimony of the uh, suspects so that that information could not be used against them. And a truth commission would set up the same paradigm, where we would be asking people to come in and disclose information, and it would preclude 
criminal prosecutions that would follow the, those exposures. There you go. And, and that's why truth commissions are often favored by the powerful. Yep. You know who one of the, one of the, the major proponents of, of these kind of truth commissions Henry Kissinger. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and the guy who was supposed to head the 9/11 commission, and that shows yes. you what their intention was there. Yes, indeed, and and of course he can be arrested as a war criminal. He has to be very careful where he travels. So no wonder uh, he favors truth commissions over uh, prosecution. He's even written about it. It's really quite amusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I quote him in People versus Bush. But uh, in any event, um, another thing that I found very fascinating was um, that. The Jersey girls, those those um, gutsy New Jersey widows, yeah. 9-11 widows, had put out a letter on the Internet that ended up in my inbox saying, pleading with Leahy not to do a truth commission. And the reason, they said, was that all the things that, that were going to be covered had already been um, investigated. We don't need one more commission, they said. Uh, and then they pointed out about the flaws of the 9-11 Commission. So I actually went down and visited with them, had a very interesting visit with two of them. And there's a whole chapter in the book about Leahy and the Jersey Girls that yeah. I think readers will find very interesting. Indeed. Well, Charlotte, it's great to meet you. Thank you for your work and your advocacy. Uh, let's recap. You mentioned two websites, shardennett.com. It's shardennett.org, which is about my campaign. And okay. I am, um, and people... People v. Bush uh, should be up and running by either later today or tomorrow. Okay, and that's .com or .org? And that's .com. <laughs> okay, people v. Bush, no punctuation, well, And there's com. Chelsea Green, my, my, my wonderful Vermont publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, so people, just Google Chelsea Green, and you'll find uh, the page about me and the book, and, and you'll see the other wonderful books that they publish. Charlotte Dennett, The People v. Bush, subtitled One Lawyer's Campaign to Bring the President to Justice and the National Grassroots Movement She Encounters Along the Way. A pleasure to meet you. You're a fine American. Well, thank you so much, uh, and I feel the same about you after having this interview. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this powerful episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Feel free to share it with a friend and email me, peter, at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to Until we meet again Happy trails